This week on the question box, it's satanic panic. Sex, drugs, death, the end of the world. Should my kids believe in Santa? Is there fundamental meaning? Are aliens safe? What the hell was man? Question box, question box. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the question box. And this week's question is the shortest one yet. Three words. Is Satan real? That's the question for this week. I like how punchy this is getting. Is Satan real? Uh, Now, before we get into all of that, let's just talk for a minute about like Satan, the character in pop culture, because this character who is found in the scriptures and has been found throughout church tradition has also become sort of a folklore character. The Satan, as we understand this character now, uh, doesn't necessarily look anything like this character did in scriptures. In some communities, the idea of Satan is like the most terrifying thing. He is the prince of evil, the king of darkness, and he kind of takes on this almost mythic, frightening level. There are certain maybe more charismatic expressions of church where it feels like they're always on guard of, you know, a demon's coming, is the devil coming? I remember someone once saying, Satan was in my room. Satan was there and I could tell it was Satan because the darkness was so real. Satan could have been anywhere on earth and he was in my bedroom at night. Dad, the devil, you know, there's this kind of, almost even within religious spheres, this almost unhealthy fear and power that people can give this character called Satan. When people, even Christian people, talk about the idea of Satan, that it can seem like this character uh, in their minds has such power that it's almost like God and Satan are in this cosmic battle for the soul of humanity. And so people can think about Satan in terms that maybe uh, are unhelpful because there's such a fixation, it almost gives this character more power than the character is due. And on the other hand, in our culture and in some uh, religious settings and Christian settings, the character of Satan is like sidelined or completely ignored, is made almost cartoonish. Uh, If I had to take a guess, I I would wager a bet that most of our imagination about who Satan is and what this character looks like uh, is shaped as much by Bugs Bunny as scripture, more by Bugs Bunny and Dante's Inferno and these, again, folklore sort of reads of this character, which I think is actually perfectly faithful to like play with characters from scripture in modern settings to put them in different scenarios. But when we watch pop culture and we see this character of Satan, often people then, you know, say this character is so cartoonish. This character is such an exaggeration. This character is so ungrounded from reality that surely there's nothing real about this character at all. That the character of Satan in the scriptures must just be some old superstition from back in the day when primitive people believed primitive things. Uh, But these two extremes, either having an unhealthy fixation on this character of the Satan or denying in any way the reality of this character in our world, I think both of these things fail to capture uh, the nuance and the importance of a character like the Satan in the scriptures, and I also think in our world today. So first, let's go to the Bible. First off, Satan, not necessarily a proper title. Uh, We kind of have this capital S, Satan, uh, and we talk about Satan as if Satan is a person, but the, the Satan as described in the scriptures is less of a person and more of a a force, almost like an animalistic spirit, a spirit of 
opposition, a, a spirit of adversity. Uh, the Satan's name, even the reason I'm saying the Satan is because in the Old Testament, where we first meet this character of the Satan, uh, the name of the character is Ha-Satan, which is to say the is the Ha, and Satan is adversary. So in the scriptures, this character is simply at first just the adversary. In the book of Job, which is one of the earliest writings in the scripture, the adversary is in God's heavenly throne room among the angelic beings, these other spiritual beings that sort of represent things that are earthly realities. And this character's job is to be like the extra extreme judge that the the Satan goes to God and says, well, you only like Job because he's got everything good, but let's really, you know, give it to your servant Job. Let's take away everything he holds dear. And you will see that this is not true worship. This is false worship. He only loves you because of what you've given him. And so the adversary isn't in the Old Testament, uh, like pure evil or the prince of darkness. It's almost functions more like an overzealous angel. Uh, an angel who is designed to put all of God's faithful to the test and maybe too extreme of a test. Like a teacher you had in school who wanted the best for everybody, but like really, really was extreme, really pushing on them, always challenging, challenging, challenging so that no one could stand. The Satan is less the kind of force that's trying to get you to do something bad and listen to rock and roll music and smoke drugs. The Satan is more the character who is the adversary against God's people, never saying they're enough, demanding more, taking more, testing more, without mercy and without compassion. Now, this character shifts a bit over the course of the Old Testament into the New Testament. By the New Testament, the character of the adversary has come to represent something that is in the collective psyche of Israel, that this adversary has become not just another one of the kind of servants of God who plays perhaps an extremely aggressive role, but now this adversary has broken off and become uh, the prince of the power of the age, has become the predominant idea of their culture. I almost think of it like if you were to go on the internet and maybe scroll too long on Instagram, there's just a million adversaries. You know, you're not doing enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not cool enough. You're not wealthy enough. Accusation, 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 adversary, adversary, adversary. When I'm on Instagram, sometimes I feel like this is the adversary's playground. This is the wilderness where the adversary is at work. And in the time of Jesus, the, the culture of Israel was under this snare of adversity. The adversary had grabbed God's people and so twisted them that the fingerprints of this adversary could be seen all throughout the land. And so Jesus, when he begins his mission to free God's people, not just from uh, the temporary uh, rulers who are over them, the Romans, but the true spiritual forces of oppression and darkness and despair. He first has to enter the wilderness. Jesus has to enter this sort of unseated wild ground where there is no structure, there is no law. And in this wild place, after fasting and, and kind of making his body weak so his spirit might be stronger or his, his soul, his psyche might be able to engage with this lie that has grabbed his whole culture. It's only in that place that Jesus can confront this adversary. And this adversary tries to accuse, to attack, to push back against Jesus, to make Christ compromise on who he is and what he is here to do. And by standing his ground against this adversity, it is in that place that Christ solidifies his mission, solidifies his calling, 
and solidifies his authority over this adversarial voice. And so that adversary who has reigned in that culture at that time, that adversary who had possessed the mind, the psyches, the souls of so many different people who had twisted the whole world up in a knot, that adversary could no longer have any power over Christ because Christ was unwilling to lie, to deceive, to bend the truth, to uh, play the power games of the time. And because he is not willing to engage with the adversary's games, the adversary has no power over him. And from then, Christ can go about casting the adversary's voice out of everyone that he meets in every place that he's in. He can expose the lies of this spiritual force of adversity because he has remained undefiled or unconquered by that adversarial voice. Okay, I don't know if that made any sense. But at this point, I'm not even talking about whether uh, is Satan real. You know, I'm not really getting to that question yet. I'm just trying to set up how the biblical imagination, how the biblical world talked about this character so that we can separate how they spoke of the Satan, the adversary, uh, in comparison to how little Nas X has depicted the adversary. Does that make sense? So in my experience, what does this actually look like to engage with this adversarial voice in our own time and place 2000 years after Christ? Uh, well, first up, I should say that for many, many years, I didn't really use this language of the Satan or the adversary. It just seemed, yeah, so cartoonish, so far removed from reality. If I was feeling you know, depressed. I wouldn't say, ah, the, the devil's on my back. The adversary's got me. But I'd say I'm having a mental health challenge today. I'm feeling melancholy. I'd kind of describe it in other ways. If I was feeling an anxiety, if I was feeling the pressure of, of maybe a social group trying to work through an issue and I could see how people were becoming splintered or, or beginning to make judgments or assume the worst of each other, I wouldn't have said, the adversary is trying to, you know, shred a, a social group. I would have said, oh, there are some social issues we need to, to work out here. I had no collective language for it. I would have just described each situation I encountered individually. I would have used other language to describe these metaphysical, non-embodied, emotional, mental, psychological, spiritual tensions. And yet the more I did that, the more I recognized that there were patterns to these adversarial voices, that there were patterns to the stories that played in my head. And that even though I might have a feeling of anxiety, a feeling of failure, a feeling of shame, they all had a similar language. When I would fail to do what I know I should do, I would feel this intense pressure and this judgment and this shame, these lies about who I was. And I talked to other people and they would describe it very similar. They would describe similar things. And I could see these same patterns playing out in the lives of other individuals, in my own life, and in the life of my community, and in the life of my city, and in the life of our country. I could see these same patterns playing out. And so over time, I started asking some new questions. Questions like, how come if I said, do you believe in the Satan? Many of you wouldn't put your hands up. But if I said, have you experienced the voice of this kind of adversary? Have you experienced that sort of accusation? Have you experienced that sort of script playing out in your mind? Have you felt this oppositional force to your own flourishing and the flourishing of those you love? I bet most of you 
would put your hand up. All this brings me to a quote that I'm going to butcher by a preacher named Nadia Bowles Weber, who said, I don't know that I believe in demons and the devil, but I know that I've experienced them. I've recently begun to wonder if perhaps the challenge we're facing isn't so much a challenge of experiencing what the Bible is pointing to, but a challenge that comes with not having language in our modern culture to describe what we are experiencing. And what is that thing? Where does it come from? Is it an evolutionary tick? Is it some sort of biological misfire? Is it because we eat too much processed food? Is it because we're on social media too much? Yes, yes, probably all of the above. But in addition to those things, there's language that the Christian tradition would use to describe this, including many other spiritual traditions. And that language would be that this is an adversary. Not a physical one that floats from place to place. It's not like a ghost. It's not like a monster. But that within every human and within every culture, there are powers and principalities and forces at work in our collective psyche. And so within each one of us, there will be these bubbling adversarial voices that rise to the surface, that play out in our mind. And you can call it whatever you want, but within the Christian tradition and within the other spiritual traditions coming out of Judaism, we would call this the Satan or the adversary. And while the adversary may not have a body, may not be a person, and may not even be concrete enough to name this adversary is very real. Now, it is worth noting that just because this adversary is real doesn't mean that this adversary needs to be scary. This doesn't need to be a frightening uh, visual. You know, you don't need to put in your head the cartoonish visions of the devil or even a frightening one at all. In fact, the best visual I've been given in the last couple of years about who the Satan is, the adversary is, comes from the Disney Pixar movie, Soul. Uh, and in Soul, if you've seen it, there's all these kind of uh, angelic beings named Jerry's. And they're sort of these uh, non-physical, represented by lines, playful creatures who seem to serve uh, the, the souls before they are, are birthed into the world and then the souls after they die. But among all of these Jerry's, there is one character named a Terry. And Terry is the judge. He, he counts every soul that's died. He is meticulous in making sure every single dead soul gets to its final destination. And he will not stop until it's all been set exactly right. There is no room for mercy. There is no room for grace. And Terry reminds me of the Satan. But once that Terry gets a hold of you and begins to work that accusation, that challenge, that adversarial spirit in your ear, even something small and insignificant, something that you, you normally shouldn't be afraid of at all, can do a fair amount of damage. If you've ever met somebody who feels paralyzed by decisions they made in their past, you've met somebody who has faced the adversary. If you've ever felt limited, afraid to step out in faith, you've met the adversary. If when you think something good about yourself, it's immediately balanced by something worse about yourself, then you have met the adversary. And much like in the movie Soul, which I can't recommend watching enough, by the end, the character 22, this little soul, uh, is so wrapped up with these voices of, and, and go watch it, you'll see it, these voices of accusation, 
these shaming voices who say you're not enough, you'll never be good enough, you're a failure, there's no place for you here. And so while we don't need to in any way be afraid of the adversary, we should be really careful about letting the adversary into our minds. We should be careful about guarding our psyches from this sort of accusatory voice. Because if we allow this adversary to get in there and begin to drive the narrative that we live out of, it can do a lot of harm. This is why all throughout the scriptures, we see this constant testimony that we have to confront the word of the adversary with a truth. If the adversary comes at us with a lie, we confront it with a truth. And if the adversary comes to us with a crooked truth, something that's true about us, but not defining of us, we have to come back with a greater truth. The fact is, maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe you've harmed others. Maybe you've acted selfishly. And that's just a fact. And the adversary is going to bring that fact to you and then try to blow it up, make it the largest thing, make it the, the, the central narrative of your life, the thing that you've done that spoils all other things. And in that case, you've got to confront a half truth with a full truth. And that full truth is what the scripture is called the word, a word that is true about you, that you are beloved, not because of what you do, but because of who loves you and who you are, that the past does not define you, but your past mistakes are forgiven in Christ. They can be forgiven when you welcome that word of forgiveness into your soul. And instead of living out of that pain, something new and hopeful and joyful can grow within you. There are so many ways that the scripture teaches us to confront these lies with truth. And it becomes almost like a jujitsu move where you use the power, the momentum of the lie against itself. That this adversarial voice, when properly confronted with truth, actually becomes a sign of where we ought to put our energy, of what we ought to move towards. That ultimately, like Christ, the lies can end up, when confronted, revealing more truth than we even had before. And that is a beautiful and, and powerful part of what the Bible is getting at when it describes spiritual warfare. But how we today, in a modern secular culture, engage in real spiritual warfare is another question for another episode of The Question Box. Well, hey, that was fun, everybody. We made it through the Satan. Well done. Thanks for sticking with it. Uh, if you're new to this channel, hi, my name's Kevin. I'm a pastor in downtown Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And uh, every week I take questions from some of you on the internet and on uh, Tuesdays. I post two of my favorite questions on Instagram, and then people vote on which one I'm going to respond to that week. I think I've got two or three episodes left before we'll take a break for a little while. So if you've got a question, send it in. If you're watching this on YouTube, just post it in the comment box below. Or you can listen to this on the podcast, uh, The Question Box with Kevin Makins, and you can send in questions on Monday when I post them on my Instagram. And as always, if you like this video, make sure to go outside and swim a little bit, because here in Canada, the summer is beginning to wrap up. You don't know how many swims you're going to get. So just turn off your phone and head to the beach and make the most of a beautiful day. I'll see you all next week. Grace and peace.